0: Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. This podcast is about being black in America for over 80 years. It is Wednesday, December 20th, 2023. Coming up, the mainstream media wakes up, the war in Gaza must end. The Colorado Supreme Court declares former President Donald Trump ineligible for the White House. And the genocidal rhetoric has increased. Plus, Caitlin Johnstone has an essay titled Going Mask Off, about the two-state solution. We begin with former President Donald Trump. Yesterday, a divided Colorado Supreme Court declared former President Donald Trump ineligible for the White House under the U.S. Constitution's Insurrection Clause and removed him from the state's presidential primary ballot. Brian Tyler Cohen reports.
1: In a bombshell ruling, the Colorado Supreme Court has barred Donald Trump from appearing on the Republican primary ballot in the state for 2024, finding that he engaged in insurrection on January 6th and is therefore not eligible to run for president. This is the first time that a candidate has been ruled ineligible under that provision since its inception in 1868, which makes sense in that Donald Trump is the first candidate and the first president to engage in an insurrection against our own government since then. According to the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling, the district court did not err in concluding that the events at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021 constituted an insurrection. The District Court did not err in concluding that President Trump engaged in that insurrection through his personal actions. President Trump's speech inciting the crowd that breached the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021 was not protected by the First Amendment. The sum of these parts is this. President Trump is disqualified from holding the office of President under Section 3 because he is disqualified. It would be a wrongful act under the election code for the Secretary to list him as a candidate on the presidential primary ballot. We do not reach these conclusions lightly. We are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law mandates we reach. Trump's spokesman issued a response on behalf of Donald Trump, saying, Unsurprisingly, the all-Democrat-appointed Colorado Supreme Court has ruled against President Trump, supporting a Soros-funded left-wing group's scheme to interfere in an election on behalf of Crooked Joe Biden by removing President Trump's name from the ballot and eliminating the rights of Colorado voters to vote for the candidate of their choice. Democrat Party leaders are in a state of paranoia over the growing dominant lead President Trump has amassed in the polls. They have lost faith in the Biden presidency and are now doing everything they can to stop the American voters from throwing them out of office next November. The Colorado Supreme Court issued a completely flawed decision tonight and we will swiftly file an appeal to the United States Supreme Court and a concurrent request for a stay of this deeply undemocratic decision. We have full confidence that the US Supreme Court will quickly rule in our favor and finally put an end to these un-American lawsuits which of course is a lot of finger pointing at Democrats for something that Donald Trump, and only Donald Trump, was responsible for. Remember, no one forced him to incite an insurrection. He made the conscious decision to do so, and thereby violate the plain text of the US Constitution, all on his own. Trump wanted to lead the party of personal responsibility, perhaps he should consider taking some. Now, importantly, this decision will inevitably be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which will have the final say on this matter. If the U.S. Supreme Court opts to hear this case, then its ruling will resolve this question for every case across the nation. Meaning, if SCOTUS says that Trump can appear on the ballot, then he'll appear on the ballot everywhere. Conversely, if SCOTUS says that he can't appear on the ballot because he engaged in insurrection and is therefore disqualified, then Trump won't be able to appear on the ballot in any state, meaning his hopes of becoming president are gone in one fell swoop. Conversely, let's say the U.S. Supreme Court opts not to take up this case. In that instance, the ruling of the lower court, which in this case is the Colorado Supreme Court, would stand. It would only apply to Colorado. Other states would be free to litigate this question, and it would be possible that their highest courts could rule differently. And that would likely cause a lot of chaos, which is why it's likely that the US Supreme Court will step in and hand down a ruling on this issue. And that's a point that my Legal Breakdown co-host Glenn Kirshner explained here.
2: Yeah, wild inconsistency among the states on this issue is not good for anybody, quite frankly. I don't think it's particularly good for our democracy. So that prompts me to strongly suspect the Supreme Court will grab hold of one of these cases. One of the reasons the Supreme Court will exercise jurisdiction in a case is if what there is what's called a split in the districts. If one federal district decides an issue one way and another federal district decides the issue another way, the Supreme Court has a keen interest in taking those cases, consolidating them for review. And then decide it because it it really is important, you know, setting aside the sort of quality of the judgments we're getting out of this Supreme Court, it really is important for the Constitution to only be interpreted, you know, with one voice, having one meaning throughout the different federal jurisdictions. I think the same applies by extension to the states. When you have something as consequential as whether a person can be on a presidential ballot or not, yes, it's up to the 50 states to administer their state election laws, but I can't envision the Supreme Court not accepting review of this and wanting to put one word out about what the 14th Amendment's disqualification law and clause means. Does it mean that if Donald Trump engaged in insurrection, He can't be president again, or does it only mean he can't be a member of Congress or he can't be a member of a state legislature, which makes absolutely no sense. So I think at the end of the day, this is going to be one for the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: The good news at this point is that the US Supreme Court is likely to act quickly. The fact is that this issue can't languish for too long because the administration of the general election is already underway. Primary ballots need to be finalized and printed, meaning that if a move as consequential as Trump being removed from the ballot is gonna happen, then we'll need to know that soon. So while no one can mandate that the Supreme Court move quickly, All indications are that they understand that speed is of the utmost importance here. In terms of what the Supreme Court will do, it's anyone's guess. Because on one hand, we have a very conservative 6-3 court, a third of which is composed of justices who Donald Trump himself appointed. To suggest that there's no allegiance to him as a person, or at a bare minimum, an ideological alliance, would be ignoring the obvious. However, with that said, if the Supreme Court rules that Trump can appear on the ballot, then it's effectively ignoring the plain text of the U.S. Constitution, and in doing so, placing Trump above the Constitution, and that poses an existential threat to that very court. Because if Trump is placed above the Constitution and Trump wins, he'll essentially be a dictator, uninhibited by our laws or a constitution. And what does a dictator have no need for? A court that acts as a check to his own power. Meaning the Supreme Court could essentially be signing its own death warrant if it. Hands Trump the gift of unchecked power. I'm not sure the court, as partisan as it may be, is in the business of contracting its power away to other branches of government. I asked Glenn for his opinion on the matter of which way the court will rule, and this is what he predicted.
2: Oh, I have to take a deep breath and try to keep my blood pressure down because I am conflicted. I want desperately to see our democracy, I don't know, survive. Yeah. And the way our democracy survives is if insurrectionists are not permitted to retake the reins of power imagine that that being said I'm not wildly enthusiastic about all of the Supreme Court justices doing the right thing in all cases um I'm going to go out on a limb I'm going to bet 51 cents I always hedge my bets (laughs) when I'm not sure because if I'm wrong I can say well 49 percent of me you know said the other thing, and I, I get to keep $0.49 cents of That's my right. bet, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet $0.51 cents on the Supreme Court saying the plain language of the 14th Amendment Section 3 disqualifies Donald Trump because he engaged in insurrection after he took an oath to support the Constitution. That's where I'm gonna put my 51 cents.
1: So at this point, all eyes turn to the United States Supreme Court. But the fact that we're in this position in the first place is a testament to the danger posed by Trump. Even if the US Supreme Court does ultimately rule in his favor, the fact that multiple judges have already ruled that this guy has incited an insurrection against our own government is a blinking red light that he shouldn't be let within 100 miles of the levers of power in this country. Add that to the 91 criminal charges he's already contending with, and it becomes clear that the prospect of a second Trump term would effectively signal the end of this democratic experiment. This is a man for whom laws don't matter, for whom the Constitution doesn't matter, for whom democracy doesn't matter. He has shown us as much every which way. At this point, we choose not to heed his warnings at our own risk.
0: This morning we report on what can be called an awakening by the mainstream media. Chris Hayes, a longtime anchor and correspondent for MSNBC News, has had enough. He says, quote, the war in Gaza must end. The war is unsustainable.
3: As the war in Gaza enters its third month, it has become more and more difficult to properly communicate the scale and depth of misery and destruction it has visited upon the people of Gaza. Over the past week, there have been three incidents that I think illustrate just how indefensible Israel's current campaign is on moral, strategic and political grounds. First, of course, is the horrifying news of the death of three Israeli hostages shot and killed by Israeli soldiers in Gaza. Now, to be absolutely clear, the blood of those men is on the hands of Hamas, which committed a war crime by kidnapping them and putting them in danger. Alongside rage at Hamas for their deaths, the deaths have understandably also occasioned profound sadness and anger at the government in Israel. After all, the only thing that has actually delivered safety to a large number of hostages has been the week-long cessation of hostilities in November and extended diplomacy. Families of the hostages have long warned that the war itself risked killing their loved ones, and now that very eventuality they warned of has come to pass. Adding to the sense of betrayal are the circumstances of how these three hostages died. According to the Israeli government itself, they were shirtless, One was carrying a white flag, makeshift, when they were shot and killed by Israeli troops. I want you to think to yourselves for a moment. Why were three shirtless men waving a white flag shot by soldiers? And was this the first time such a thing has happened in this conflict? Have Palestinian civilians been shot and killed in similar circumstances? Which brings us to the second incident. Over the weekend, two Palestinian women, a mother and a daughter, who along with other Christian Palestinians had taken shelter in a Catholic church in Gaza City, were shot and killed. The Pope himself condemned the killings. The Jerusalem Patriarch of the Catholic Church said the women were murdered in cold blood by Israeli snipers as they walked to a convent in the compound. A point echoed this week by the Archbishop of Westminster in London.
0: Well, uh it, it's certainly a cold-blooded killing. Uh, that's that's the, the description that is given. And uh, what absolutely puzzles me is this does nothing to further uh, Israel's right to defend itself, which I
3: understand. Israeli officials initially denied those reports. Said they do not target civilians, no matter their religion. They now say they do not know what happened. We also don't definitively know what happened, uh, in large part, because Gaza is the most dangerous place in the world for journalists. And that brings us to the third incident. On Friday, the legendary Gaza bureau chief for Al Jazeera, Waal al-Dadud, was wounded, and his cameraman, Samar Abu Daka was killed as they covered the aftermath of an Israeli strike on a U.N. school that had been converted into a shelter. Now, you may remember while al-Dadud, lost his wife, son, daughter, and infant grandson all in Israeli airstrike already in October. And Samer was a good friend and colleague of my friend and colleague, Eamon Mohaldin. They worked together in Gaza. Both those men risked their lives, like all journalists in Gaza, to do their job. The Israeli military said it has never and will never deliberately target journalists, that it takes operationally feasible measures to protect civilians and journalists. Now, there are two possibilities here. Either the Israeli military is intentionally targeting journalists to kill them and lying about it, or its methods of war making are so indiscriminate, in the words of Joe Biden, that more journalists have been killed in two months of this conflict than American reporters killed in 20 years in Vietnam. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, 68 journalists have died so far. And I will tell you, I'm actually inclined to believe it's the latter. Because there are dozens, if not hundreds, of first-person and eyewitness accounts of deaths as wrenching and outrageous as the deaths of the hostages and the women in the church that are not journalists. And again, amidst the fog of war and the dangers for reporters, it is simply impossible to independently confirm that. And we need to be very careful what we can and cannot definitively say happened in each instance. What we know for sure, though, is that the destruction of Gaza is nearly total. The vast majority of its 2.2 million residents displaced. Half are at risk of starvation. Nearly all hospitals destroyed. Only four are functioning, according to the UN. We don't know for sure how many deaths, but there are tens of thousands, most likely, with many bodies still trapped beneath the rubble. A fifth of Gaza's buildings are estimated to have been destroyed. In the north Gaza, more than 60% of the buildings have been severely damaged, according to analysis of satellite radar data. A U.S. intelligence assessment found that half of the bombs dropped were, quote, dumb bombs, that is, not targeted, but rather enormous explosives that blow up everything around them. No wonder, then, that the excellent veteran war correspondent Clarissa Ward entered Gaza with an Emirati medical team. When she did that, she compared the ruins she saw with her own eyes to other devastated war zones in Chechnya, Syria, and Ukraine.
4: A man and a 13-year-old boy are wheeled in both missing limbs, both in a perilous state. Since the field hospital opened less than two weeks ago, it has been inundated with patients. 130 of their 150 beds are already full. Like Grozny, Aleppo and Mariupol, Gaza will go down as one of the great horrors of modern warfare.
3: The Israeli government says the ultimate responsibility for this destruction lies with Hamas because it hides within the civilian population of Gaza. And there's one level which this is true and not even really in dispute. I mean, Hamas is interwoven with and embedded in a dense civilian population. Hamas doesn't have some huge area marked as Hamas military base set far away from apartment complexes that Israel can attack with no worry about civilians. There's two problems with this justification though. One, international humanitarian law is clear there is no category of human shield. For example, if a number of terrorists are holed up in an elementary school with a bunch of children, you can't simply bomb the school and blame the terrorists for the children's death. But that aside, the deeper problem here is that if you spend any time at all reading the Israeli press, listening to what Israeli leaders and commentators are actually saying, it is very clear that for a lot of people in government, the mass destruction of Gaza, raising it like Putin raised Grozny or Assad raised Aleppo, is the point, the goal. Many prominent members of the Israeli governing class don't think there is such a thing as an innocent civilian in Gaza, have said that everyone in Gaza deserves their fate. From Knesset member Mayor Ben-Ari saying that, quote, the children of Gaza have brought this upon themselves. To an Israeli military spokesman saying the emphasis of Israel's military campaign was, quote, on damage and not on accuracy. To Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, suggesting there are no civilians in Gaza and everyone is a legitimate target. To journalist Shimon Ricklin, who said this on Israeli TV. <laughs> That's not a fringe view in Israel. I mean, even the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, invoked the lessons from the biblical story of Amalek and addressed the nation in Hebrew in the end of October. And in that biblical chapter, God commands King Saul on how to respond to an attack by the rival kingdom of Amalek. Quote, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, I will be the first to confess, the first to confess, I have no idea what to do about Hamas or about what comes next. But the Amalek method cannot be the solution. To be honest, I'm not particularly convinced the Israeli leadership has any idea what comes next. Many want full destruction. And and Hamas also wants this war. They have been clear on that. I think they want it to continue. They seem to think all of this death and destruction benefits in the end because of the rage it will produce towards Israel. But whatever your views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it is just plainly the case that our country is supporting a war whose animating moral logic looks to most of the world and frankly to me to be that every single last person in Gaza is guilty and deserves their lot. And that is the moral logic of Hamas. It is the moral logic that drove the atrocity of October 7th. And an atrocity like October 7th does not, cannot justify whatever comes after it, whatever the response. There is no terrorist attack, no matter how horrific, and truly October 7th was horrific, that can wash clean what we are seeing in Gaza and what we as Americans and our government are abetting. It must end. We must stop it.
0: Meanwhile, the atrocities that are going on today in Gaza are the perfect embodiment of Western values. Here's a report from Caitlin Johnstone, and it's read by Tim Foley.
5: The atrocities in Gaza are the perfect embodiment of Western values. When Israeli president Isaac Herzog described the attack on Gaza as a war to save Western civilization, to save the values of Western civilization, he wasn't really lying. He was telling the truth, just maybe not quite in the way he meant it. The demolition of Gaza is indeed being perpetrated in defense of Western values and is itself a perfect embodiment of Western values. Not the Western values they teach you about in school, but the hidden ones they don't want you to look at. Not the attractive packaging with advertising slogans on the label, but the product that's actually inside the box. For centuries, Western civilization has depended heavily on war, genocide, theft, colonialism, and imperialism, which it has justified using narratives premised on religion, racism, and ethnic supremacy, all of which we are seeing play out in the incineration of Gaza today. What we are seeing in Gaza is a much better representation of what Western civilization is really about than all the gibberish about freedom and democracy we learned about in school. A much better representation of Western civilization than all the art and literature we've been proudly congratulating ourselves for over the centuries. A much better representation of Western civilization than the love and compassion we like to pretend our Judeo-Christian values revolve around. It's been so surreal watching Western rightists babbling about how savage and barbaric Muslim culture is amid the 2023 zombie resurrection of Bush-era Islamophobia, even while Western civilization amasses a mountain of ten thousand child corpses. That mountain of child corpses is a much better representation of Western culture than anything Mozart, Da Vinci, or Shakespeare ever produced. This is Western Civilization. This is what it looks like. Western Civilization, where Julian Assange awaits his final appeal in February against U.S. extradition for journalism which exposed U.S. war crimes. Where we are fed a non-stop deluge of mass media propaganda to manufacture our consent for wars and aggression which have killed millions and displaced tens of millions in the 21st century alone where we are kept distracted by vapid entertainment and artificial culture wars so we don't think too hard about what this civilization is and who it is killing and maiming and starving and exploiting. Where news cycles are dominated more by celebrity gossip and Donald Trump's latest mouth farts than by the mass atrocities that are being actively facilitated by Western governments. Where liberals congratulate themselves for having progressive views on race and gender, while the officials they elect help rip apart children's bodies with military explosives. Where Zionist Jews center themselves in their emotions because opposition to an active genocide makes them feel like they are being persecuted. And where Israel supporters who are not Jewish still also kind of feel like they are being persecuted anyway where a giant, globe-spanning empire powered by militarism, imperialism, capitalism, and authoritarianism devours human flesh with an insatiable appetite, while we congratulate ourselves on how much better we are than nations like Iran or China. These are Western values. This is Western Civilization. Ask somebody to tell you what their values are, and they'll give you a bunch of pleasant-sounding words about family and love and caring or whatever. Watch their actions to see what their real values are, and you'll often get a very different story. That's us. That's Western civilization. We say we value freedom, justice, truth, peace, and free expression, but our actions paint a very different picture. The real Western values, the actual product inside the box underneath the attractive label, are the ones you see acted out in Gaza today.
0: As the slaughter of Palestinians continues, the genocidal rhetoric has increased. Here's Shank Yuger and Anna Kasparian from the Young Turks.
4: The genocidal rhetoric of some Israeli officials and their allies isn't just continuing. It's actually getting even more explicit and more threatening as the assault on Gaza continues. Now on a recent radio show in Israel, a local official called to flatten Gaza like Auschwitz today. So this was an interview with a gentleman named David Azule, who is the head of the town of Matula's council and is in. The interview was in Hebrew, but according to Haaretz's translation, here's what the conversation contained. So Azule said that while he is not a far right person, in the wake of October 7th, Gazan should be told to go to the beaches where Israeli ships will load them up, the civilians, the terrorists they have there, and place them on Lebanon shores where there are enough refugee camps. In other words, we should do ethnic cleansing. That's what what this is, this is ethnic cleansing, but there's more. Asked what should be done with the Gaza Strip, should his plan, be, uh, plan with regard to its residents be enacted? Azule explained that it should be left empty, just like Auschwitz, a museum. So the whole world will learn what the state of Israel can do. We're not done yet though, there's more, believe it or not. The Strip, he said, should then be turned into a huge buffer zone. From the sea to the border fence, completely empty, so that everyone remembers what was once there. Flatten everything, just like Auschwitz is today, he reiterated. Now, his comments were so egregious that the ex-account for the Auschwitz Museum responded to it and condemned his statements. I wanna read it to you. They write, memory of victims of Auschwitz has at times been violated and instrumentalized in various extreme statements. David Azule appears to wish to use the symbol of the largest cemetery in the world as some sort of sick, hateful, pseudo artistic symbolic expression, calling for acts that seem to transgress any civil, wartime, moral, and human laws that may sound as a call for murder of the scale akin to Auschwitz, puts the whole honest world face to face with a madness that must be confronted and firmly rejected. We do hope that Israeli authorities will react to such shameful abuse as terrorism can never be a response to terrorism. I give the Auschwitz Memorial. So much credit for that statement, I couldn't have asked for a better statement in response to the disgusting comments that we heard from David Azule here.
6: Yeah, so he didn't say that, uh, so it's a testament to so you can see what Israel can withstand. He said so that you can see what Israel can do, what they can commit. Uh, And so look guys, this is unfortunately um, a part of humanity. If you think that any one group is more likely to do X or Y or Z, you're just wrong. It's in the nature of man. And so unfortunately, uh, this happens throughout history, where a group is oppressed or, or kept down, uh, abused, etc. And then when they have power, they do likewise. And so, uh, is this the same as, Auschwitz? God, I hope not. And it certainly isn't on that scale at this point, for sure. But when an Israeli official alludes to that analogy, that is a terrible, unsettling thing to say, to say the least. And so so it's not that, like I, keep, I want, just want to be super clear that this group does it or that group does it. It's a power dynamic, guys. I've been telling you about that throughout this entire conflict. The powerful, almost always overreach, and are overconfident, and 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 do too much oppression, and and they do propaganda to say that, oh no, it's their fault; they had it coming; that they made us do this. In fact, that's the exact propaganda used against Jews throughout the history of the world. It's not that we were terrible to the Jews and did pogroms and Holocaust, etc. It's that they did something to deserve it, right? And that's the stereotypes, the tropes, the propaganda, etc. Now that dynamic has been switched onto the Palestinians. They made us kill their children because they were using them as human shields, total nonsense propaganda, right? They made us wipe them out. They made us do X, Y, or Z. We have a right to defend ourselves. These are the same things that have been used throughout time when the powerful want to crush and oppress the powerless. In this case, Israel feels like it's invincible. Not only does it have a military that is so much larger than, well, the Palestinians don't have any military, so much larger than anything the Palestinians have. But really, they've beaten all the Arab nations combined several times, and they have the might of the US military behind them. Exactly. So they feel like, well, they could not only do it, but now begin to say brazenly, we'll turn this into an Auschwitz. We'll flatten the place, we'll destroy and either move or kill everyone inside. And that is a sign of, a, unfortunately, a society that has decayed. And again, it has nothing to do with their religion or their ethnicity. It's the state of the power dynamics there. And that is why it is incumbent upon friends like us, America, to say you've gone too far. You've got to bring this back. Otherwise, you're gonna cause untold damage, not just to the Palestinians, but to yourselves. Well, yeah, this is beyond. Uh, anything that's bearable. And I assume, of course, there'll be congressional
4: hearings. Right. This is a
6: call for genocide. No,
4: no, of course not. And in fact, I just want to do a quick tweak on what you just said, Cenk, about how it's incumbent upon Israel's allies, namely the United States, to be a real friend to Israel and not just ask them to reel it in, but to force them to reel it in. And by force, what I mean is, you're not getting any more military aid. You're not getting any more you know, foreign aid if you continue to carry out what you are continuing to carry out in the Gaza Strip. There's too much slaughter happening, too many children dying. And we are not going to allow this to happen with our bombs, okay? And, but we're not getting that. Instead, we're getting you know, lukewarm statements from the Biden administration. I mean, I watched Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's press conference yesterday. I watched the whole thing. The question and answer part I think is the most enlightening portion of the press conference because he was specifically asked, okay, well, is there a timeline? Is the United States implementing some sort of timeline for Israel to reel this war back in? And and basically change their behavior so we don't see as many civilians dying as a result of this war. And you know what Lloyd Austin said, just straight up, no, no timeline, this is Israel's war. Okay, so if you're not willing to Threaten the military funding, if you're not implementing some sort of timeline. If there's really no genuine, sincere ask here, does the Biden administration not realize how weak they look when they keep saying over and over again, Israel needs to be careful to protect the civilians. Israel needs to be careful to protect the civilians, and then they don't do it, right? Israel does the exact opposite. That makes the American government under the leadership of Joe Biden look pathetic and weak. It's embarrassing.
6: Yeah, and guys, we got to ask: Did they? Did anybody ever really mean it when they said "never again"? Because we have eyes; we can see what's happening. There, uh, 90% of Gaza is destroyed. Uh, 90% of the population is homeless now. And 29,000 bombs dropped nearly 20,000 dead, over 9,000 kids dead. What did you mean never again? Did you mean never again only to specific people or only to our side generally, only to the West? What did you mean never again? Because when you say here's $14 billion extra to commit more war crimes and further genocide with no check at all, what you're you're saying the opposite of never again. You're saying do it again and again.
4: And I wanna just note, we're not cherry picking here because there have been genocidal statements, statements in support of ethnic cleansing by multiple government officials in Israel. And I wanna give you a few other examples. So last month Israeli security cabinet member and agriculture minister Avi Ditcher of Netanyahu's Likud party said in an interview that Israel is rolling out the Gaza Nakba when shown images of residents of northern Gaza evacuating south, on the IDF's orders. His comments came a few days after another government lawmaker, Jerusalem Affairs and Heritage Minister, Amiche aliyahu suggested in a radio interview that dropping a nuclear bomb on the Gaza Strip is an option, since there are no non-combatants in Gaza. Now, this individual was briefly suspended as a result of the nuclear statements here, but Obviously, that kind of punishment isn't really dissuading them from saying more genocidal garbage. And so some politicians here in, the, in America, in the United States, are parroting this type of rhetoric, which is incredibly dangerous. He cried for help, but he was useless. I go to sleep every
7: night. Traumatized, they say occupation, trying to hide that it's a genocide. I just wish a kid could grow up to see his mama. I wish that I could do something about bombs dropped on Gaza. Her is so bad, know From the towers <laughs> finally see what goes on overseas and behind the scenes a little boy got his neck on a concrete like George Floyd and the kid when he trying to breathe through a rock, but they got a tank. Dead on the floor, he been praying for change. You murder children, no, we not the same. You got my people, they dying in chains. Ain't nobody evil like the IDF. No kidding is lost again. I might be next. He got shot, peace may he rest. I seen it in the videos and photographs. You shoot a kid and you laugh about it. First of all, nobody ever ask about it. Too many bodies to count with simple mathematics. Families gone in it's so dramatic. Leave his home. you sure.
0: That's it for this Wednesday, December 20th edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard.